Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the In Eleven podcast. I'm your host, Brendan Griffiths, and this is the show where we bring on those from the world of football to show you what it takes to be in the Eleven at the highest possible level. This week's guest is current Flower City Union captain Alex Ainscoff, stepping in to tell us about his career and it is a super super interesting one i had a ton of fun recording this one and so much fun that we that we went pretty long so if you'll notice we have chopped this up into two parts so in this first part here we talk so much about his earlier career his time at stanford which at the time he was there it was probably the peak of stanford's powers and it was loaded with guys who are now playing the professional level and when stanford was right around that time when they're winning tons of national championships we also talk about then his decision to forego college and then go on to the professional ranks and, and the beginning of his journey bouncing overseas. So as soon as you finish up this one, be on the lookout for that part two to hear the rest of Alex's journey. Uh, I believe this is going to come out on, if you're listening to this today, it comes out on Tuesday and by Thursday, we should have the second part all set to go for you as well. So. Sit back, relax, and take a listen to the career of Alex. break from a hectic season Alex has stepped into the 11 with us unfortunately as we were just talking about off the off the cusp of a little injury but hopefully it's it's not one that will last too long Alex I appreciate you taking the time to step in and talk with us and to uh talk about your career a little bit yeah thanks Brendan for having me I'd actually um I had listened to recently started listening to your podcast a bit um started actually when um I saw Luke Bavone was on and I had played with him and uh in Richmond. So I saw that on social media, made me check it out. And then, yeah, the last couple episodes since then been, been listening as well. That's awesome, man. Love to hear that. I think uh, that's been one of the cool things about doing this for me too, is I, as, as I interview more players, I speak to more players. It's always like somebody who I've had on in the past has been like, Oh, you had him on. I played with him or I knew him. And it's, it's guys that I wouldn't even expect to have known each other. Um, that, that always happens. I figured there might've been a connection there because you guys are both, I think, at the kickers probably at the same time. Um, and, yeah, no, and then we had Cam Vickers, too, who also played at the kickers. That might have been different times than you, but it's just it's funny. As I'm sure you know, and, and I say here a lot, the soccer world is is a lot smaller than people think. Super small. And also, it's just you get, you get kind of hooked on it because it's all very relatable stories. And I think I hear so many things that um, guys have gone through that like I've gone through the exact same thing. And you think sometimes uh, you're the only one who has to put up with, um, you know, the tough, the tough side of football, but um, it's kind of like makes you feel like you want to keep going when you hear other guys are all going through the same thing. And, and also, also takes you out of moments where you maybe feel bad for yourself a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully the more people you can hear and, you know, the more people that we can kind of, I guess, inspire that maybe want to do something similar, go on to play football they can understand that there is 
that there it, there's a lot of things that happen where you might hear it on a podcast from us and and be like that can't possibly be what it's like to play to play professionally. Yeah. It's no it it is, you know, you you yeah. might have to sleep in an airport, you might have to do some crazy things that you would not expect. Um but it's all, you know, all just in chase of this this little ball that we love to chase around the field. <laughs> yeah. Exactly that, exactly that, man. So, if we kind of take it back here, you I'm guessing football was kind of in and around you from from moment one with your dad's history with the game and him being a coach. And I can't imagine that you were able to uh, to steer clear of football for very long. Yeah, no, I mean, he um, he made it really easy for me growing up because, yeah, he was involved, but it was never there was no pressure at all in terms of Mm. getting me to play. It was just, you know. I was the one dragging him out to go kick a ball um, and and not vice versa. So it was a really like healthy relationship in that sense. And also, um, I mean, he gave, he has, he still, I think is, he didn't coach me at every age level, but um, I think I still rate him as probably the best coach I've ever had for. Mm-hmm. And I honestly wish when you're a kid, a lot of times when you're hearing info and feedback, you don't want to hear it from your dad. You'll hear it from anyone else. Um, so there's a lot of stuff I wish I had maybe taken on board, um, yeah. more when I was that age, but, um, now even still, he's a guy that I can talk to when he, like when he's able to, to see my games and give me feedback that, um, like it's really, really, it is a good resource to have. Yeah, absolutely. So how early on in your career, obviously, you know, it's influenced by the fact that your dad at this time, is he in the college game? Is he coaching at the college level? Kind of when you're growing up in your youth career? Yeah. So we, we, um, moved around a little bit when I was a kid, he coached at, uh, Providence college when I was born. And then, um, we moved up to uh, Maine actually, cause he took a job with Bowdoin college, which is like a smaller D three school. Mm-hmm. I was there basically through elementary school and then came back to Boston when he got a job at Northeastern. Um, and, and yeah, so, moving around a little bit, nothing too crazy, but, um, was always in and around his, uh, his teams going to their training sessions, going on away trips, stuff like that. Um, and I think that sort of made me feel like seeing the players and stuff like that when I was, um, you know, 10, 11, 12, 13, and could get an understanding of what that level was like, made me feel like it wasn't that far away. And made me feel like it was because I was around them all the time. It made me feel like it was super realistic for me to to get to that kind of level at some point. Yeah. So you almost answered my next question right there. And was the goal then kind of for you because you were so immersed in college soccer? Were you already starting to think about maybe the professional ranks, or was it kind of because you knew so much about college soccer and and kind of that's where you were around all the time? Was that your goal when you were in those ages of eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, sort of? Um, no, I think, well, there's, it's funny, like there's two sides to, to being around college is like, I think it was, it was great to be exposed to, um, those, those players. And like, sometimes, I mean, he would even, you know, let me hop into training sessions or like if they were having a captain's practice over the summer, I could get in. So like, um, you know, like I said, that sort of gives you a sense of where, what your level is at and where you need to get to and things like that. Yeah. Um, but there were also parts of seeing him in the college game that put me off um, 
college soccer to where and made it more so that like my only goal when I was growing up was to play pro. Like I was obsessed. Mm-hmm. That w- it was an obsession for me. That's all I cared about. Um, and what I mean by that is things about college, like the limited training time you can have with your players. Um, you know, the, the differences in motivation between guys that want to push on and guys that are just there to, to get their degree. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but it sort of gave me the sense that like this environment isn't really what I want. Like I want something more than this eventually. Um, yeah. That doesn't necessarily mean I have to bypass college. Like, cause especially when I'm, I'm at the age where um, growing up, that was not really a feasible thing or not yeah. as feasible a thing. Like you had to go to Europe. Whereas now I feel like it's, with USL and how much the game has grown, like now it's super realistic for guys to not go to college and go play pro and, and get their degree at the same time even. Um, but for me, it was like, it, the thought was sort of, it'd be great if I could go play pro right away, but mm-hmm. realistically I'll probably end up in college. Um, and, and yeah, all those experiences that I gained as a kid would, um, would help me get to that point. Yeah. It's so, it's so funny that you mentioned that, how, it's that's a, a shift in kind of I've talked about this on a, a few other episodes in the U.S. soccer world where like and it, it's not even really that far ago because you were in, in Stanford at what 2014 right 14, yeah. so that was still like the time when that was sort of the traditional route right you went to college soccer and then you kind of went to the pro game after that and it's like in the blink of an eye what that's only been six seven eight years now it's such a different scene sort of for now we have MLS next. We have routes for, for guys to get over to Europe even earlier than they have in the past. And so it's funny when you say like that even such a short time ago, that that was still kind of the path for how to go to the pro game. Um, and now it's changed so differently. And, you know, none of our really top players really are even considering the college game. Now I would say, you know, kind of 18, 19 year olds at, at around that level. So it's, it's funny how quick kind of things change in football, at least in, in our country. Well, yeah. And for me, it all comes down to finances. Cause I remember when I was like a senior and junior senior in high school, the minimum salary in MLS must've been like 40 grand. Yeah. That's true, so, yeah. I mean, just from a practical standpoint, when you're looking at that, you're thinking, okay, well, what's a mm-hmm. full ride to name a school worth like more than that? You know what I mean? So you're, it's, just practically financially it just doesn't make sense to to take an mls contract in high school unless you're like a no-brainer prospect and maybe you're even signing for more than the minimum um or you just or you just love football i mean realistically if if that had a that was never on the table for me but if it was on the table like i was taking that 40 grand um but like now the pathway for kids is like okay maybe usl you're making that Maybe MLS, you're making. I think the minimum now is like eighty grand around there. Yeah. Um, and then beyond that, the market for players, for young players in the MLS to push on to Europe, is crazy now compared to what it was then. Like I think of players um, that were signing homegrown or going to college. You know, when I was eighteen, nineteen, that they they were just uh, you know five years too early to the game because yeah. if they were coming out now, they'd be like borderline like million dollar transfers to uh to europe yeah it's crazy it's like it's the crazy. americans are just sort of the next uh 
or the newest hot, uh, you know, toy or video game on the market right now. Everybody's like very curious about it. And it's like, you just constantly hear of a new player has interest from Europe, has interest from Europe. And it's, uh, it's fascinating. It's, uh, exciting. I think for the country, I still think it will be kind of yet to be seen if, if it all can kind of come to a head and then we can start to do well at the national team level. But yeah, I I heard you say something there kind of, as you were talking about your journey of, maybe looking at college, also really pushing towards the program. You said you kind of were obsessed with that. You became obsessed with that as a, as a high school age player. What does that, what did that mean to you? Like, what does that obsession kind of look like? How did it manifest itself for you as a, as a youth player and, and going about your day to day? I think it was just, you know, nothing we talk about, um, you know, guys talk about when you want to, to get to a certain level, you have to make, um, you know, sacrifices in other areas of your life, be that academic, when you're in school, you maybe don't spend as much time in school, social, you know, maybe you don't spend as much time with friends, um, even, you know, missing out on family events, things like that. Mm. And I guess for me, like none of those things, the reason I knew I was obsessed is because like, none of those things ever felt like a sacrifice Yeah. to, to miss out on any of those things. Like if the decision was to go train or to do, you know, X, Y, Z, it was just a no brainer for me. Like I didn't even have to think twice. And, um, you know, at a younger age, um, younger meaning, you know, the early years of my club career. So maybe up until 15, I really struggled with a lot of injuries, um, mainly um, like overuse type injuries. So stress fractures, um, little muscle pulls, things like that. Um, and, you know, the fact that that didn't, um, those setbacks didn't hold me back too much at that age mm-hmm. was a sign to me that like, I like, I'm not going to let these little things stop me. And I felt like that helped me build like a sense of, um, resiliency, I guess at that age. And then like coming out the other end of that is when I actually started to get like a positive kind of feedback loop from my plane. Like yeah. for, it felt like for every hour that I was putting in, I was getting that much better. And, you know, sometimes you get to, to a point later in your career where you plateau, but like, that was the time, like I would say 16 to 18, where it was just like, I could go train like two, three times a day and like play. And then everything that I was putting in was like coming out on the field, like scoring goals, getting assists, um, you know, standing out on the field and, um, yeah, I just became like really, like I said, obsessed with that, like yeah. that feedback cycle, I guess. Yeah, that, that feeling of getting better, the feeling of the work that you're putting in is is actually paying off. When, yeah. when you talk about like that feedback loop, that positive feedback loop, is that, because I'm curious, I think a lot of players, you know, I can say from personal experience, I'm sure a lot of players can resonate with this. I think a lot of players struggle with their their confidence on the field. They struggle mm-hmm. with their ability to go in and and back themselves, you know, and if they make a mistake to, to not get down on themselves and whether or not that be, uh, you know, a coach that's providing them negative feedback that they need to sort of ha- learn how to handle that and then still remain positive. Like when you mention that positive feedback loop, is that like your coaches are also giving you the feedback as well? So that's kind of hyping you up a little bit or is it, you know, coming from your teammates or is it really like internal in I'm seeing it for myself. I know what I'm doing. It doesn't matter what I'm hearing or what I'm, you know, seeing 
on the the outside kind of that's like that I really appreciate that question because I appreciate your understanding of that because I had probably no understanding of the differentiation between internal and external until yes. maybe the past year or so. So at that time it was all external. So mm-hmm. teammates, coaches, um, you know, you're getting interest from all these schools, you're getting um, interest from agents, like stuff, like stuff like that. It's, you don't even have to worry. It's just, everything is happy and, you know, it becomes, it's easy to go train. It's easy to go do all that stuff. Like I said, um, and I felt like in the, the early, early stages of my pro career, that feedback loop shut off. Um, so, or even, even when I went to college, that feedback loop shut off because there would be, um, you know, I would go and play and, you know, think I'm training really well, think I'm playing really well. And then, you know, for the first time in my life, I'm not playing every minute of every game. And then you start to question yourself, question if you know how to evaluate a good performance versus a bad performance. Um, And that was a real problem for me. It took me a long, long time to get over. Um, And it wasn't until I actually started to value my own opinion of myself and not rely on all that external stuff that like I sort of came out the other end of that. Yeah, 100%. I mean, to be perfectly honest, it's still something that with me as a player, I still struggle with because I, I, for me, I kind of noticed about myself that I would get, you know, in game or in training, it was almost like I I became so the fuel for me was when I did something good, when somebody would say it like, oh, that's a good ball or good tackle. Like I needed that. And like, Mm -hmm. especially I'm sure you can relate to this when you go overseas and you don't speak the language so people aren't going to one they're not going to really you know praise you in the middle of a training session because they're all here to do the same job you know like some players are like that some players just aren't like that but then to also they're not going to also find the praise for you recognize that you don't speak the language and then like translate it to english for you like that's so much extra work that they have to do um so it's like it becomes a very quiet place for you when you're on the field And that's when you really start to hear your own thoughts. And for a lot of players that can get to a a really scary place. Um, And I've, I've been there before, you know, and then you're just harping on every single mistake that you've made. And you're like, everyone's thinking about that mistake. Everybody thinks I'm terrible. Everybody thinks, and I'm like, holy shit, man, you got to stop or you're never like, you're never going to be able to play the level, you know, you can. Yeah, no, that's, that couldn't be more like similar to, what I experienced from probably the start of college up until maybe honestly the middle of last season. Mm-hmm. Um, like it took a long, long time. And it wasn't until I started actually working with, um, with a sports psych um, online um, that that sort of helped me get out the other end of that. And obviously like, you know, I'll have my setbacks from, from time to time, but it's a lot, lot better than it was. Um, and uh yeah, I mean, it really, I can't say enough about how much the mental side of things, um, I think, affects performance. <laughs> Has there been any, because I think I want to hammer that point home too, like that's something that I think is still sort of n- newer um, in being accepted kind of in the game, like speaking about the mental side of it and doing that sort of sport performance side of the game. Um, is there anything, you know, a uh, 
one kind of thing that you've really taken away a tip or something that the sports psych coach has kind of worked with you about that you you maybe changed your own feedback loop in the way that you go about day to day yeah um i think there's there's two things the first kind of ties into what we're talking about and it's like um you know part of um stabilizing your own feedback loop is having a really strong self-image and Mm -hmm. and self-identity um and important for me with that was like not tying my entire self-identity to myself as a player oh my god yeah (laughs) (laughs) because once you do that then obviously you're you consider your entire self-worth to be based on how you're performing from session to session game to game and if that's not going well then i mean basically everything in your life feels like it's not going well um so it's impossible to have um you know a stable mindset when you're in that constant up and down um because the key to being able, I think, to perform consistently is being consistent in your mind. Mm. Um, and then the second thing I would say is um, just like uh, how he got me to be very um, uh, disciplined with how I set my goals and how I go go about that side of things. Because, I mean, I would always... It's sort of in my head, like set goals. Like, like I said, when I was growing up, I want to play pro. Um, when I was in college, it's like, I want to get, um, in the starting lineup, but it's like, what does that actually mean? And what do you need to do to, to get to those goals? Um, and I was never, even though like it's, it was never a problem for me in my career to like go and put in the work and train and do this, but I really did in retrospect, never really had um, like a roadmap of how I'm going to get from A to B. So like on a small level, you know, you're on the bench and you want to start. Well, it's like, okay, what does the coach think I need to do? What do I need to train to improve on those things? And then can I stay, not just that, but can you stay disciplined to it for a period of time and not change because you're not getting results in, in one week? Um, and really trust that if you stick to that, you're going to get the rewards that you want. Um, so yeah, he, he, he kind of got me to be more disciplined and concrete and like writing those out, um, having, you know, measurable ways to, to determine if I'm achieving those goals. Mm -hmm. And then also to really trust, like, it sounds stupid. Probably everyone says it, but like to trust that process. Yeah. Um, you know, for a period of time. Um, and it's funny because that's always something that if you had to ask me before I was working with him, I'd be like, yeah, I'm super disciplined, this, this, that. And even maybe other people would say that I'm disciplined in, in my routines and stuff like that. Um, but um, in retrospect, like I was nowhere near where I needed to be in that regard to actually get results. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, so yeah, those were the two things I think that he helped me improve the most on. A month's of mm-hmm. so, bunch of other things like it's honestly been um i think the best thing i've done for my career good yeah i hear i hear that same kind of sentiment from a lot of players who have done something similar to that that it's it's unlocked amazing things in their game it, and it sounds like you know maybe the first point of real adversity or kind of friction that, that you faced in your career was when you obviously those injuries when you were a young player but then kind of when you go to stanford and it's 
now like you look at the roster that uh that that you were a part of there it's it's loaded from from top to bottom with guys who are now playing professionally and and really good players and and obviously you can speak to that firsthand um so you mentioned that feedback loop kind of where you're getting that interest maybe from Stanford and and they want you to come to the school what's it then like to go into the school and and talk about just maybe that first year kind of the experience of it yeah um <laughs> That's like a situation where I, if there was one situation where I wish I had the mindset that I do now, mm-hmm. it would be that one because man, the, the, the training environment, the access to resources, um, that I had at Stanford is uncomparable to anything that I've experienced since then. Yeah. Um, and I think it's honestly, be, I mean, MLS has come a long way now to where you can maybe say like, that's, that's a step above, but, um, I mean, it's it's really as good as you can get in in terms of that stuff um and you know the the training environment was just a combination of the demands of the coaches but also i mean the players like you said that i was around Mm -hmm. but you know when i was coming in you couldn't tell me that (laughs) like i was coming in and i was gonna start and i was gonna um be in the mix to get a generation adidas contract and this is not this is not stuff that i'm like I'm not a very outwardly confident guy. Like I'm not going out and saying these things, but in my head, that's my path. Like yeah. that's that's what's going to happen. Um, and I think to be honest, like a little bit of that arrogance was good for me because when I came in, like I did, I did initially like get more playing time than most of the the freshmen mm-hmm. in my class. Which like when you look at that class, like I think we had like eight of the 10 kids ended up playing pro at some level, like MLS or USL, which is is crazy. Yeah. um, Yeah. Like I came in and initially like did pretty well. And then um, I got a groin injury. um, I think it was like maybe three weeks into the regular season. And um, in college, once you get injured, you're kind of always playing catch up. Um, But that, that setback you could say for me was like, coming back, getting fit, and then not getting a look. Like, I think I might have had one appearance after that for the rest of the season. Like, that is where I started to handle things poorly. Um, And so what do I mean by that? Well, my answer to things growing up, like I said, because of that positive feedback loop was always, if I train more, I'm going to get more out of it, and it's going to show up immediately. Um, So in that situation, it's like, okay, I'm not playing. I'm going to train my ass off. I'm going to stay after. I'm going to go go lift extra, do this. Um, and it became a thing now where it's now I'm overtraining. Now yep. I'm not, um, now I'm not performing when I need to perform, you know, I'm performing, um, on an individual session, but then when I go to the team session, like I'm knackered mm-hmm. and, <laughs> and I don't even realize it at the time, but in retrospect, it's like, you might not feel physically fatigued, but you're mentally fatigued because you've already trained that day. And the guy that you're going against, to try to take a spot is as fresh as anything. Um, and that's why he looks like he's running circles around you. Um, so, so yeah, I actually, now that I've gone off on that little bit of a tangent, I forgot the original question. No, no, that's okay. That's, that's, I mean, perfect. Cause I think like we have so many players on here um, and they just talk about like, they just put their head down and they, they train more, right. They do more and they do more and they do more. Yeah. And it, it's, it's like you, you have to strike a bit of a balance with it. And I don't know if really the correct sentiment is less is more. Um, 
But with the sense of like a college soccer season, um, which for those who you know are unfamiliar with it, it's it's so compact, right? You're looking at playing like 18 to 20 games in the span of three months, maybe four months, if you're really like playing into the later rounds of the of the playoffs. So it's essentially like a game every Wednesday, Saturday, and and whatever you know that cadence looks like for your conference or for for your team. So to then be also adding gym work onto that, to also be adding individual sessions onto that. It's like eventually your body just starts to break down. And then when it's time for you to perform, whether it be in training, which is, you know, that showcase, can I get into the 11 or can I get into the match? And then also the matches themselves, it's like you don't actually have even close to 100%. And I think, I mean, regardless of that, every college player will probably tell you, like once you get five, six kind of games into the season and then beyond, like you never really feel that good. You never feel that recovered um, at any point because it's just such a demand on your body. Because I don't really think you're meant to play that many games in that short a, a span of time. But it sounds like for you, you sort of took that that feedback of, okay, you're not playing. And then you just thought, okay, well, I can control it by the amount of hours that I kind of put in the bank here. But then it didn't really come to come to the reward that you were looking for. Right. And then not only like because you don't get the rewards right away, it's like, well, initially I might have been doing the right thing by, you know, staying after training to work on my finishing or, you know, doing like one extra gym session. But then, um, you know, he's not changing the. I see that he's not changing the team Mm -hmm. and I think it's totally me. Whereas in retrospect, like it's because we're winning every game and he's got two seniors starting, which is, you know, now I can look at that situation and be like, yeah, no wonder you weren't like, no doubt you weren't going to play like you were up against it from the start. Um, But when you're in that moment, um, it's really tough not to get frustrated. And especially when you're, I think most kids, you know, when they're going into a program like that, they've had a lot of success in youth level. So it really is a rude awakening when you get into that environment and you're competing against those guys day in, day out. And you're seeing other guys that you played with in youth level who went to, um, you know, other schools that you felt like you were better than, and now they're playing more than you. Mm -hmm. And that, (laughs) then you start to get into another area, which is like comparing yourself to, to other people, which is like, I think one of the biggest pitfalls, um, for a player and something that um i used to do all the time um, when i was college when i was pro um and yeah that was something that um really really held me back as well Mm. so then how did it kind of progress Uh, obviously it unfortunately didn't lead to getting into the team as much um even though the team might have had a lot of success that year individually maybe it wasn't the season that you were looking for as the season closes, kind of what's going through your head and, and where's your head at in terms of going forward? Yeah, my head is still in the same place. So it's it's I'm going to crush it this winter and spring and I'm going to get myself on the field. And um, yeah, those opportunities come the springtime didn't really come. And uh, yeah, just the frustration reached a point where I'm like, you know, this just isn't the right fit, I don't think, for me. And I need mm-hmm. to go a place to somewhere where I can play um, because it wasn't going to get any easier the next season. Um, so initially, like I was looking to to transfer 
um, late in that spring. And I like went in, asked for my release. Um, and initially, you know, the coach told me like, yes, we'll give it to you. And then he had a separate conversation with my parents, um, where he sort of, you know, said, Hey, I think Alex is making a bit of a mistake here, so on and so forth. And that sort of got them to convince me to stay. Um, Mm -hmm. so, (laughs) but when that happens and a coach hears that you wanted to go out the door, like in retrospect, I should have just left right there because Mm -hmm. he, he knows that like, you know, if things are not going well for you, like he has an idea in his head that you're not the guy who's going to stick it out now. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I did end up staying and come back in the fall for preseason, but then it was like, I just felt like I couldn't win. Um, and that's, that's when it reached a point where I felt like it didn't, my performance really didn't matter. Like his mind was just made up and, you know, I could be wrong. It could, obviously there is a certain point where if you're scoring 10 goals every day in training, like you can't possibly be kept on the bench. Um, but realistically, like, I just felt like I had no chance to play that season. Um, so at that point, um, because it was in preseason, the only place I could, um, work out a transfer that late on is, is with, uh, Northeastern because my dad was there just like Mm -hmm. logistically to get me in for the fall. Um, and so that's what I ended up doing for, uh, for 2015. Let's take a break to talk about support for the In the 11 podcast is brought to you by Manscaped, who is the best in men's below the waist grooming. Their products are precision engineered tools for your family jewels. Manscaped Performance Package is the ultimate men's hygiene bundle. Join over 4 million men worldwide who trust Manscaped with this exclusive offer for you. 20% off and free worldwide shipping with the code 11 at manscaped.com. Now, if my math is correct, that's about 8 million balls. Now, listen, here's the deal, gentlemen. The Performance Package 4.0 has arrived, and it is a game changer. Now, I know we got a lot of ballers out here, right? We got a lot of coaches out here. A lot of you, I know in your sessions, in your games, you're constantly saying, you got to take care of the ball, but you're not taking care of your own. It's crazy. It's it's wild, and we got to change that here, and Manscaped's going to help you do that. So, first off, we've got the Lawnmower 4.0, and it is the future of men's below-the-waist grooming, and that is because... Of their advanced skin safe technology. The lawnmower 4.0 is also waterproof. It has a 400k LED spotlight. So no more going blind in the bathroom, getting hair all over the floor, right? Pop in the shower. You've got the light as well. Easy. And you're done. On to the next one. Now, same goes for that weed whacker, the Manscaped weed whacker for your ear and nose hair trimming necessities. You've got the proprietary skin safe technology, which is going to help reduce with nicks snags, and tugs in those delicate, sensitive areas. Now, last but not least, we can't forget about the Crop Preserver Ball Deodorant and the Crop Reviver Ball Toner. A lot of you guys, I know you've got a routine with your recovery, right? You've got pregame rituals, you've got postgame rituals, a recovery routine that you do after, right? Hopping in an ice bath, whatever it is, you have to add your below-the-waist care to that. You've got to take care of your balls, gentlemen. You don't want to be playing 90 minutes, and then you come in, and you're sweaty and disgusting, and you're not taking care of yourself. you got you got to do it. And Manscaped, like I said, is here to help you in that department. And who knows? Maybe that special someone that's in your life coming to the game, watching you play, you know, you play a good 90 minutes, maybe you bag a goal. I don't know. 
You want to be ready. You want to be prepared. You don't want to be in a situation where you are left without Manscaped. Now, just because Manscaped is hooking you up and they want to take care of you, the Performance Package 4.0 has a couple of goodies thrown in there. They've got the Manscaped boxer briefs and they threw in a little carry-on bag just to travel with all of your Manscaped products, whether you're going for an away game, right? It's a road trip, you're in a plane, whatever. Chuck all your Manscaped products in there. You don't have to think about it. You can forget about it and make sure that you're still taken care of. So it is time, gentlemen, because your balls will thank you. It is time to take care of yourself. So go to manscaped.com and get 20% off with free shipping using the code 11. That's 20% off with free shipping using the code 11, E-L-E-V-E-N at manscaped.com. That is 20 whole percent off of your order. 20% off your order with free shipping at manscaped.com. Use code 11, unlock your confidence, and always use the right tools for the job with Manscaped. Wow. Wow. So you left in 2015, like in the middle of preseason, then came and joined Northeastern's preseason. Yeah. Uh, did the did the coast-to-coast. Coast. <laughs> yeah. Huh. Yeah, which what was I mean, like to then like, go and play for your dad at at uh at the college level then. Well, so that became that became its own disaster to be honest. Um so essentially what happened, I I go there um probably beginning of September. I have to wait um wait 4 weeks to to get cleared by NCA. Mm-hmm. Um from so I get cleared probably play two or three games. And then he actually, um, he got fired as the coach. Oh my God. Um, and, and yeah. And so without um, going into that situation too much, because I don't know how much I really can go into that situation. Yeah. It was, it was essentially something where I felt like I could not, like I was not going to continue to play for that team yeah. based on how, how he was treated. Um, so I ended up, yeah, I ended up quitting the team in middle to end of October. And so I'm still at the school at that point and um like still had like options from um teams that were looking at me in high school to go transfer again. Um but with NCA if you transfer three times mm-hmm. so the before the third time I would have had to sit out a year. So I mm-hmm. could have gone to another school but I would have had to sit out an entire year before I could be eligible to play. And um like for me, that was just, that was just not going to happen. Um, because I've already gone essentially two years without playing. So to go three years, is like, I might as well pack it in, um, as far as trying to play professional goes. So that was the point where I decided to, um, to leave school and try to go play in Europe. So I, I think you've kind of referenced a little bit to maybe a college player who's listening out there and, and thinks they're in a tough situation. You've given a, a little bit of the blueprint of here are some of the things to look for if you think you need to transfer. Um, and I, maybe you can expand on that a little bit because I do think there are certain players where it definitely is is the right move for them to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know I, I speak to college coaches. I'm sure you speak to a lot of people in and around the game of all levels currently and it seems like the transfer portal is bigger than it's ever been in the past yeah. in terms of guys are like, ah, I'm not happy, so I'm out. And obviously that was not the situation with you because it, it sounds like you really, you wanted to, to put your best foot forward and it, it, you know, it just didn't work out. Mm-hmm. Um, is there anything that you would kind of say, you know, if you have a, 
you know, a friend or a teammate or, a, you know, something like that who's, who's calling kind of in that situation and they're ready to leave, um, what would you kind of advise them? What are the things they need to make sure that they're looking for before they just ask for that release? Because it is, it is a different ball game once you ask for that release. It is. I think the number one thing that you can do that I wish I did is to be more proactive during the recruiting process mm. um, in terms of figuring out uh, which school is the best for you football wise. Um, and so there's a million things, right? When you're looking at schools to think about, um, you know, school size, do they have your major um, socially? What's it like? Um, you know, how are the facilities and all that's super important. But um, I think one I, I certainly know I didn't do and I, I bet a lot of kids don't do is um, is like watch the teams that you're getting recruited by mm-hmm. and see, you know, do you actually see yourself fitting in there? Because um, I think for what my profile as a player at that time um, really did not suit um, Stanford style of play just straight up. And I felt like the whole time I was there, I was trying to, um, you know, work on my weaknesses to fit that mold. Um, but at the end of the day, I had other options on the table that would have been a easy, a better fit for me. Um, and really would have just made more sense for me to do that. Um, because I think, I think what I've seen now is, yeah, you, you do get more exposure. You get looked at more by pro clubs at those schools. But like, if you're playing well enough anywhere, yeah, um, like you'll push on. It might not be, it might not be, you know, a top MLS pick, but like if you put enough good film on, um, you know, you'll get picked up by, by someone, whether that's USL, whether that's overseas. Um, so, so yeah, definitely like, Try to find the right fit, prioritize the right fit for you football wise um, before and, you know, how the coach feels about you. Are you his top recruit or are you one of, like I said, 10 guys that came in and you're yeah. just, you know, you're going to be in the mix. But like um, you're not the guy. Um, things like that, I think. Is what you can do to put yourself in a position to not end up having to transfer yeah. <laughs> in the first place. So I think yeah. if people did, if people did their homework more before, there would be less people in the portal. Yeah, hundred percent. And because I think part of it is like players. I know certain players are maybe afraid to ask those tough questions, right? Because it's like a college coach and it's a big deal, and they don't want to potentially mess up their recruitment. But it's a huge decision that you're making. You know, you're essentially if it all goes well, you're choosing the next four years to go and play for this program and this coach. So. You'd rather ask the tough, uncomfortable questions now, like, you know, do you actually see me as a as a as a fit here, or am I just a roster guy to fill things out? Like, sometimes it's that's what the coaches they get paid to do, you know, to answer those tough questions for you as a recruit. So, you'd rather have an uncomfortable conversation before rather than a really uncomfortable conversation after, where, hey, coach, this isn't really working out, and I want to transfer because. Um, as much as we say transferring is sometimes a good thing, it's not an easy thing to do. It's it's no. a pain in the ass. <laughs> yeah, definitely. But all this is easier said than done when you when we're in our twenties now compared to yep. when you're seventeen, eighteen. Because I mean, when I'm sitting in the in these guys' offices at seventeen, like I don't feel like an adult. I feel like it's nope. like 
whenever they tell me it's like, yes, sir, three bags full. Like, you know what yeah. I mean? <laughs> what do I have to do to play for you? Like, <laughs> so you're kind of at their, at their mercy. Like, like their presence is a little bit intimidating to be honest. Um, exactly. You just want to like please them as much as possible. And then, um, you know, make your decision based off all those other things. But, um, but yeah, if, if any kids out there can, can take that advice on board and maybe it'll help them out, then, then this will have been successful. Yeah. Yeah. So then if you look at then your decision to, to go pro, obviously yours was influenced by the fact that it was going to be a year without the game. And that just didn't make sense in terms of your trajectory. What if like on the flip side, if, uh, you know, you had played that season at Northeastern. Do you think you still would have looked at that time or would it have been, um, you know, maybe continuing on at Northeastern and then kind of going that route? Because I think I'm curious about that question too. Like for guys who are looking at the pro game but are still in college, like when's really the right time to make the jump? I think the game kind of tells you when it's your time. Like are you getting interest or are you not getting interest? Mm-hmm. Um, um, so there's that end. But also – like for me, as soon as there was a legitimate chance to, to go play pro, I was going to take it. Yeah. Um, now, this is a little bit different because this is where I had to, you know, start reaching out to to connections and see, you know, where I could maybe get a chance to go trial. Um, but if there had have been like anything, if I had have had a good season in Northeastern and there was teams interested, like I would have gone in a heartbeat. Same at Stanford, same as anywhere, same as like I said, if that happened in high school, like yeah. it's a no-brainer for me. My my mind's made up. Um, so I guess that's a little bit different circumstance because I was so dead set on on doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I guess if if you're a kid now, I think that's sort of the default is like the game is gonna tell you if you're ready. You know, are you because if you're not yeah, you could be in a circumstance where, you know, maybe you're not the right fit. And, you know, even though it's not to say that you need to perform in college to end up playing pro. Like I know guys who did not, were not necessarily good in college that like I've played with and have pushed on to, to be good pros. Um, But in general, I think you need to be performing at that level before you take your chances pushing on higher. Same goes for anyone. Like if you're playing, if I'm playing now in NISA, like I'm not going to say after this season, no, I'm ready to go play in MLS if I haven't scored 30 goals. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. So I think it's just like being being honest with yourself. Yeah. So what was that first opportunity as you're reaching out to connections and, and your time in Northeastern is coming to a close? What, uh, where's the first stop on the, on the European tour? Yeah, so um, my U18 academy coach, um, who was also he's also the whole coach at Holy Cross. Um, I reached out to him, and he um, he had a former player who was Icelandic, who was coaching for one of the bigger clubs in Iceland called um, KR Reykjavik. And you know, Iceland talk about uh, soccer being a small world. Like Iceland is the smallest of the small. Where um, you know he knew he felt like he could send me to trial on any team just about with the amount of people he knew. Um, so he was sort of my connection to get over to Iceland and yeah, he sent me to two or three clubs and, um, ended up signing with a team, um, called Lakner 
in the it's like the second tier it's called it was called um like one dealed so mm-hmm. it's like uh Pep, i think pepsi dealed like pepsi league was the top league and then um we were in the in the second level so how was that first experience going over and trialing with teams in in iceland like i'm sure kind of how you were mentioning before and youth teams you know, you might be the best of the best, right? And then all these kind of guys meet when they come to the big time college programs and then everybody becomes the best of the best. And now somebody's not the best of the best anymore, right? And and I think that that keeps happening, that keeps being recycled as you go higher and higher up the levels. And everybody who I'm sure was in and around that team has been the guy at some point in their career because now they're playing professionally. So what's that like when you're going into those first, those pro trials? And then also on top of it, you're doing it in a place that's, that's so completely foreign. Yeah. So I was still like very, like I, before I ended up signing, I, I trialed with two teams in the top league in Pepsi and um, it was uh KR Reykjavik and um, Star Yen. And like I performed, I felt like very well in those trials. And even, um, you know, in my retrospective, <laughs> the way I remember those trials, like I do remember performing well, but now I have the understanding that like, I wasn't good enough to get signed, if that makes mm. sense. Like, I think you can go to trials, especially when it's w- with a team in, in the middle of their preseason and you can be at the level, but especially when you're a foreigner, you need to be better than what they already have. And I, I realistically, you know, at that time, no pro experience was not better than what they already have. Um, so at that time, I didn't understand that. And it was a little bit frustrating. Um, but overall, like I kept handling it well. Like I felt every session I went into in every trial, like I was performing pretty well. And, um, you know, despite all the stuff that had happened to me um, in the past year or so, um, you know, I'd kept my head down, kept working. And I felt like, I was sort of starting to get that, um, that like positive feedback loop back in, um, to where, you know, I was getting good feedback from these coaches. It wasn't like, Oh, he's, he's not at it. It's just like, yeah, we want someone more experienced, um, Mm -hmm. to come in for this position or we have, you know, three other center midfielders. So we're not going to take him. Mm -hmm. Um, so the, again, this was kind of stuff that, um, kept me in a good, good mindset at that time. So how did all the pieces of the puzzle come together to join the club that you ended up signing with uh, in Iceland? Yeah, that was so Lakner, that was crazy because I did. So I had done those two trials um, where it was like a few sessions with both teams. Yep. Didn't work out. And then, you know, it was getting towards the end of I had booked to stay there for for two weeks um, and it was getting towards the end of that. And then I got a call from um, my contact say this team is having a game, you know, can you come play? They need an extra player. So I went, I played one game and then I signed after that. <laughs> <laughs> so wow. yeah, it was kind of crazy how that worked. But they they um they had a game in Reykjavik, but they were actually were they were located on the other side of the country. So yeah, I played that game, stayed one more night in my Airbnb and then flew over across across Iceland, which is only, I mean, Iceland's pretty small. It's only like an hour, but um, yeah, then ended up going over there for the start of their season. So what's that first contract like? Are you, are you, you know, staying in a place by yourself and is it training every day? Like maybe talk to a little bit of the people about kind of what 
Icelandic football is like and what your first professional season is like. Um, sure. you know, do you I look back at it fondly? Or? Rude Awakening. <laughs> oh, Rude Awakening? Is that what it was? Yeah, yeah. That was um, another uh, – that's like an example of um, expectations versus reality. Mm. So – so those te- the first two teams I was trialing for, like they're full time trained during the day, um, you know, really good professional environment, so on and so forth. Um, to be, I wasn't sure what the players were making because I didn't ask them, but like, you know, they like I said, they were all full time, so they must have been getting something like fairly decent. Um, mm-hmm. This team, so obviously I only played the one game, and like never trained with them so i had no understanding of what i was really getting myself into but for me it was like oh it's a contract like sure like let's do it um so yeah this was this was much different this was um so initially i was actually living um the owner of the club they were like hosting me um until because they were waiting for um like my apartment that i was going to share with another player that Mm -hmm. was still I think getting renovated or something. So I stayed with the, with the owner for I think the first month of the season, but so staying in his basement, um, this town on the other side of Iceland is in the middle of nowhere. Um, 700 people. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So basically not even a town. This is a, this is a village we're talking about. Yeah. Um, training. Uh, so first I go over there training. We only, they only had like maybe 14 players. All, all Icelandic, but we still had um, three weeks before the season to go. And the week before, so I, first first I go over there, I'm thinking, oh, we have 14 guys, I'm going to play like a ton. Like, this is awesome. So I didn't really care that much about that. And the level was still, you know, good enough to make me feel like, yeah, I'm happy to stay here. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the week before the season, um, we have, I think it was like eight Spanish guys show up. Um, <laughs> All, all from the all from the same agent, and these are guys that like they're good, like they're good men. Like yeah. play, um, the Spanish pyramid has changed so much, but I think essentially what they had played like third or fourth tier Spain, which is like, I mean, a lot better than uh, second tier Iceland. Yeah, I would imagine. But like these guys came in, and it's all of a sudden like, wow, like I'm not gonna play now. <laughs> yeah. Um. So that was kind of like came out of nowhere, and. Uh, but we were training, we were training only three times a week, which, I, to be honest, I never really understood because everyone was essentially there for football. Yeah. Um, you know they're bringing all these international guys in, but the I think it was because the um, the coach and the Icelandic players were also working during the day because we trained during the evening. Mm-hmm. So that um, again, so that's like expectations versus reality of like. I'm, t- I'm telling all my, my friends and family, yeah, I like signed my first pro contract, but now I can sit here and say like, like, yeah, I was getting paid but, and housing, but that's not really like, it's not, I wasn't really pro, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And there were, there were some teams, I think it's probably half and half at that level where like half the teams were full time and half the teams weren't. Um, but I would consider us, you know, semi-pro. I think uh, I think that's such a funny conversation, and I, I guess you could call it an argument like that people have all the time, where they'd be like, "Oh, you know, well, the Regionalliga, like the fourth tier in Germany, it's not technically yeah. pro, you know, it's amateur." But like, yeah. you go and watch some of those teams. It's like the level these guys is are, so good. 
these guys are professionals, man. Like, okay, sure. They train four times instead of five. Some of them also have a, like, I don't, the, the whole, that whole kind of argument, um, I think is just, is fascinating to have because, you know, it just, it ends up depending on what you look at it for. Like I would definitely, sure. We might say the level was lower for you there when you're in Iceland, but I would definitely still consider that pro because that's what you're there to do, right? You're in that country to play football. You're getting paid right. to play football. So like when you look at it from those strict definitions, I get completely what you're saying that there's, I mean, there's levels everywhere where, you know, there's, I'm sure guys who have uh, played at even higher levels where they're on super low contracts and they're like mm-hmm. barely making enough to get by. So it's like, well, then are they not pro? Like I just, it's such a, it's such a funny argument to have like with guys who, uh, who are trying to do like, what we're trying to do, especially when you're kind of in the lower leagues where there's a bit of that, that gray area sort of. Yeah. I think like basically, cause what it can come down to for me is like, or now, now that I've seen all these different types of variations and levels for me, it's like, you can be a pro, even if you're not at a pro level. hundred percent. Because yeah. at the end of the day, if I'm like, yeah, I'm there and we're only training three times a week, but the days we're not training, like I'm training. And I'm only there to play football. So, like, for me, that's you're a pro. Um, yeah. But, like, you know, if you're – like, I think of, uh, like, England, you know, National League or National League North, National League South. Um, you know, some of those guys, the players are full-time. But the clubs only train twice a week because that's all they can afford for the facilities. Mm-hmm. So, then I look at it as, like, well, the club is – the cl- if you ask the club, are you professional? The club would not say that they're a professional club. Yeah. If, if that makes sense. So that's kind of where I like, I draw the, but at the end of the day, it's all semantics. You know what I mean? I mean, I was there to, to play football at the end of the exactly. day. So, um, but it definitely like at the time I felt stupid saying I'm a pro, which in <laughs> retrospect, now we can sit here and say like, I shouldn't have felt stupid, but um, you know, I definitely did at that time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's like you said, the, the same thing with the Stanford thing It's the beauty of this podcast is we can look back and, and say, huh, maybe, you know, when I was 19 or 20, I would have handled that situation slightly differently. Cause as mm-hmm. I've gone through this, as I've told my stories, I would be like, yeah, you know what? I probably would have done this differently and that differently and this stuff. And you know, all the years of wisdom now teaches you kind of, kind of some things. And, and that experience for you when you're in Iceland, did it then lead to those Spanish guys just came in and, and kind of took those spots? And did you, did you get <laughs> any mean, minutes? I played one appearance. I had one appearance. In- oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah. And, like, that, I mean, Jesus. That, but it was more, and again, in the situation, I don't see it happening, but it's so easy to see in retrospect that it's, like, the same exact cycle um, that led me to not – getting to where I wanted to be in at Stanford, Mm. which is okay. Um, I'm not playing. Well, I'm going to work harder. And then I'm going to, so I'm going to do this training program. I'm going to get stronger. I'm going to get faster. I'm going to, you know, be a beast on the field. And then, you know, you're not a beast on the field because you were a beast in the training session you had in the morning. So Mm. now, so now when you go to training at night, um, you know, you just don't have it. And uh, yeah, man, that's like, I mean, I don't need to keep reciting that script, but that's kind of what, what the story was for that, for that whole season. And um, there's, and there's also other elements to it. Like 
a big one for me, and I don't know, in your experience, um, you know, playing overseas, I don't know if you had anything similar happen, but like my mentality going over there as a foreigner um, was very immature um, from the standpoint that I didn't try to embrace their culture at all. Mm. Uh, and I didn't see that there's things aside from how you're playing on the field that, like, you know, dictate if you end up playing in the games, um, you know, simply like, are you a good teammate? Are you a good guy? You know, go, do you go to team social events? Do you try to, you know, learn the language, things like that, that literally did not even dawn on me when I was that age. Like I'm, my whole thing was, I'm going to go over there. I'm going to be, you know, Jamie Vardy and just like be a beast and move up the levels. And, um, so I completely neglected that side of the game and was very, you know, socially not involved with the team, just felt like I was there to do my training, work hard and go home. And I don't think that's the recipe for success, if, especially if you're going over to like um, those sort of lower levels in Europe. Yeah, because and, and maybe if we look at it more from kind of your perspective and maybe it's a bit more of a cynical way to look at it, but in a way you might need some of those people to kind of help you move up the ladder, you know, whether it be yeah. the coaches that you have, whether it be the players that you're playing with, if they know people that can maybe help you make that jump. Um, it's a lot, you know, and I'm sure you've done this for, for teammates that you've had or whoever, like if they call you and say, Hey, can you give me a recommendation or can you help me with something? You're yeah. going to, you're going to definitely want to do it for somebody who is a good guy, who's someone you want to hang out with, who somebody is, is a, fun guy to have around the locker room versus somebody who maybe when you did play with them, you didn't get along with them. And not to say that you had bust ups with teammates or anything like that, but it, it, again, it's just like, well, I mean, yeah, he's a good player, but he, you know, he's maybe a little bit quieter. Like, Oh no, he, he's a great guy. He's a great guy to have around the locker room. And you know, he's a good player as well. So you should really take a look at him. Like those little things, they sometimes are what makes the difference. Yeah. And that, like I said, that didn't even dawn on me in the slightest mm. when I was, uh, when I, in those earlier years. So after that year in Iceland, is it so, you know, is there interest from them to bring you back or is it kind of mutually like this is, this is done? No, I mean, so I didn't even make it through. I made it to August, I think August or July. And I'm like, I've had it. Like I can't keep, I can't keep staying in a village of 700 people to, <laughs> to not play a single minute. Yeah. And all those, all those insecurities were really, really coming out of me in that time. And my head was just like, not in the place it should have been. It wasn't yeah. in the place to like, keep, keep fighting. Um, and when I say keep like, yes, I was still going out. I was still working hard in training, but um, like mentally I was just, I was so over it. Um, mm. So. All right. I want to thank Alex once again. I know that was only the first part of our episode. So make sure if you are listening to this, and the second one is already out, then you know right where to go for your next time that you're jumping into a podcast. If you are waiting patiently, the teaser that I'll give you is we talk a lot about his uh, other pursuits in Europe. We've got time in Netherlands, Germany, Sweden. And trust me when I tell you that some of the stories that he has are incredible. So it's not one that you're going to want to miss. So thanks to Alex for, for coming on and sharing that story with us. Thanks to all of you out there who are listening. 
Uh, quick reminder here, as I mentioned last episode, if you would like to support the podcast, it would be greatly appreciated if you could head over to the Patreon page that we have for In the 11. And it helps the show grow, helps support this content, helps support us keep continuing to do episodes like this one. And, and that's really all I'll ask from you at this time, besides heading over and checking out part two of the Alex.